0: At its heart, this podcast is about how we, as investors, can influence the companies that are having such a huge impact on our world. My guest today is Eric Rice, and in his role as Head of Active Equities Impact Investing at BlackRock, he's working to bring the rigor of impact investing to the public markets. Now, of course, BlackRock is the world's largest fund manager. They have more than $7 trillion of assets under management. So, the potential to scale impact is massive. But there are big questions around whether public companies can be held to account in the same way as private companies, and whether a fund can maintain impact with integrity at such a large scale. And that's what we're all about here at the Good Future podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Eric didn't start out in finance. In fact, he was a diplomat. He then shifted to working as an economist for the World Bank. He did a PhD at Harvard. And eventually, he realized that it was in the world of finance that he could drive the most change. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It offers some deep insights into the cutting edge thinking around how to have impact in public markets, but also asked Eric about how Larry Fink's highly influential letters have been translated into action across their range of portfolios and across their investment policies. Please let me know what you think. Feel free to leave a review or comment on iTunes. Plus, you can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Eric Rice. Here we go. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Now look, it's early afternoon there in San Francisco. What's the mood there as as 2020 comes to an end?
1: Oh, I think despite the challenge of being now at purple stage, the highest stage of lockdown, which we are in for the first time, um, I think the mood is ready to move on. 2021 can't be like 2020. I think people are not happy but relieved that. There will be a vaccine, there will be a Democrat. Um, I think San Francisco votes 95% Democratic. And so I think everybody's looking for something better than what we've been in these last eight months.
0: Hopefully it's the worst of it is in 2020 and that's behind us, but, um, difficult to tell, but anyway, we'll keep moving. And of course we're here today to talk about your work at BlackRock running the listed equities impact strategy there's a lot to talk about there and we can go in plenty of different directions but I think a good place to start is just to give people some context you know you and your team have done a lot of work and written about your approach to impact investing in public markets which is you know quite a step from the tradition of, of impact in private markets this is still an area that there's plenty of debate you know there are people like Paul Brest um, who are adamant can't have impact in public market. Now, I've actually had Paul on the podcast. He's an academic from Stanford. His writing was really central to my own development understanding uh, of this field. You even cited his writing when you wrote about your approach to the issue of additionality. Uh, You know, you guys argued that your investments were indeed offering additional capital to help impact companies grow. And and I think that's really what this is all about. So can you help us understand the, the BlackRock approach to impact in public markets?
1: I think to understand, you have to look at where we came from, which is looking at that world that where impact was only in the private markets. And our observation was, well, A, that's ridiculous. Why should it be only millionaires who can invest in doing good in the world? We need to democratize that so that anybody with their pension or any amount of money can invest in impact. So what does that mean? That means public markets also. If you think about the size of all private markets and the magnitude of the of the needs, the size of the problems in the world that have to get solved, if you say that it's only going to be in the private markets, it's only going to be a small part of the solution. You need to mobilize the hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars that are in public markets if you're going to have a big impact. So that was our motivation. In addition, was the uh, ability to look a decade ago at what was going on in private markets impact investing, what are those precepts that we can bring over the public markets? And of course, it didn't exist before, but we said, why shouldn't it exist? And we looked at these questions of additionality to see if we could model something that would adapt that. Can't be exactly the same, but adapt that the same way. I would tell you that what we're doing in public markets is as now as additional and as engaged as what happens in private equity. I would acknowledge that in venture funding, you know, the, the investors are focused on keeping the enterprise alive every day and putting in management that can win and every aspect of strategy. Of course, we're not going to be that engaged, but we're at least as engaged as most private equity impact investors because... We do do not just ESG engagement, but we do impact engagement because we're focused on whether we can have additional capital. Just because a company went public doesn't mean that it doesn't need more equity or debt capital. Most of them do, especially the younger companies in the public markets. And then working with them on a different angle that is, I think, really unique and important, which is trying to figure out how we can be partners with management of our companies to make them more impact. And we have lots of projects ongoing, mostly in early stages, but to partner with our investee companies for, in different ways to achieve that greater impact. So I think once you once you have in mind the private model and then you bring that over and adapt it as, as uh, with as much fidelity as you can, then there's no reason to think that you're not additional. And I'd also say that it's not all about additional funding. There are lots of, th- a company is an ecosystem. There are lots of things that it needs and lots of ways that an impact investor should be engaged with the company to make it more impactful and more profitable. And so it's, it's naive. Maybe, maybe that's the difference between practitioners and academics. It's naive to think about additional funding as the only metric even though we're also involved in additional funding.
0: And so, I mean, a key differentiator there is this fact that we've got a secondary market. And so your decision to invest or divest doesn't have such an immediate impact, certainly at the IPO stage, there is that sort of point. So how, how do you, how, you know, you talked about you guys sort of dug in and tried to look at, how you can adapt this model, was that a key focus? And how do you recognize that view that these companies just have such a big share register and the fact that money coming in or out, whether or not you're focused on impact, that that extra capital, its impact can be limited.
1: It can be limited and at times it can be very important. So let's think about when Tesla was a VC-owned company, and then it went to private equity markets. And they, the private equity investors fell over themselves trying to invest in this thing. Were they additional? I mean, there was no shortage of funding for Tesla or for some of the hot issues in other EV or in renewables. There's so many areas where venture, too, venture or PE are is not working in a world of Capital shortage. And in fact, a fifth of what we invest in is in emerging markets and in social sectors, where there are plenty of times when the company is not well known and it doesn't have people falling all over itself to give it funding. And so we can be, in those cases, more additional. The other thing I would say is that we found that companies moving from pre IPO to IPO are thinking about, well, who are our investors going to be? And they worry that in the IPO, it's going to be all hedge funds, who are buying it to flip it, and who have no longer term stake in it. Our expected holding period, which we've been true to for all these years we've been running this, is at least five years when we invest. And so how different is that from venture or PE? Five years is sort of the uh, the time frame we're all talking about. And, and most of the things that we have in the portfolio have been in the portfolio since we launched six years ago. The thing is that the company thinking about IPO wants to have long-term minded investors who are aligned with what its purpose is and that's what we offer. And when they think about could they have us as a cornerstone investor or can they give us an allocation of the IPO that's more than than what others get, they're they're thrilled. And and we do get good allocations because we're offering something different. We offer to give them a longer time frame, a recognition uh, that they are impactful in solving the world's problems and the possibility that we will be partnering them with them for years so that when they need capital you know it happens regularly with our companies they may need to raise capital at a time when the markets aren't in love with them and so a long-term investor that knows what they're about and knows what their potential is will be sticking with them so that's that's the kind of thing we offer at that moment of ipo but then all along the time when they need to raise money it's important that we be with them. And we're different at that point. I'll tell you a funny story. I got a call from a uh, small uh, drug company in Japan that we invested. And he had learned that he was in our portfolio. And he he linked into me and I'd never heard of him before. And he wrote me, I just learned that we're an impact company. This is the CFO of this company. I mean, I say small, it's $15 billion company. He said. This changes everything about how I think about my company and my job. (laughs) That was really great because it mattered to him that we were the kind of investor that would be invested with them and that their solution to Alzheimer's, which they're working on, is something that not just was a commercial opportunity for them, but is something that changes the world if
0: it gets achieved. Oh, look, I think that's a really interesting issue, that last story there, because I think that there is cynicism in the market sometimes about, um, you know, you get it often with the SDGs and and ESG investors and saying they have an ESG fund or their their fund is aligned with the SDGs and that perhaps they're simply jumping onto the trend and doing the mapping project and nothing has really changed. There is a lot of nuance there and that we need to remember that impact investing wasn't invented when the term you know, was popularized in, what was it, 2008 or 2007 in Italy. So I think that that's an interesting concept and that once you get a founder, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but once you have a founder to recognize, oh, hang on, that's the name for what we've been doing. We are driven by something. And do you see it as an element of, oh, wow, we've always done that, but we've, we've found it difficult to put a value on it? but now investors are, are valuing that side of our business where we you know, focus on having the greatest impact on our beneficiaries. Uh, is, is that sort of a, a part of it? And, and I mean, the fact that you're talking to these founders at this early IPO stage is a really good insight.
1: I think all of that's true. I mean, SDGs, wonderful as they are for mobilizing funds and for focusing on what are these problems in the world are also a great vehicle for greenwashing and impact washing. The thing about it is that at the same time as it permits impact washing and greenwashing, it is a vehicle for people understanding what needs to be done, what problems there are in the world. And I do think that uh, there for, for someone who is not just doing a marketing gig, it is important that now there exists this way to speak about SGGs more than ESG about what are companies that are solving the world's great problems and the reason i say not esg because is because every company can be a better esng operator that's about how the company operates how any company operates what impact investing is about is about what the company's goods and products do and so it's a it's a it's a different segment in the market it's a, it's a subsector i mean for our universe we're talking about 800 companies, $8 trillion of market cap. So it's a significant subset, but it's still a subset. And I mean, sustainable investing is a place where all investing, I think, needs to move. Impact investing will necessarily be a subset of that.
0: And so you mentioned the, the IPO element earlier. I think that's very interesting, you know, talking about these impact exits. Uh, and, and I think that's quite you know, core to this discussion, because if we talk about the sort of the purity of private equity impact investing, that eventually these investors are going to want an exit. You know, really, this issue is how can we ensure that we maintain this impact once they take that big step into the public markets? And obviously, it's a huge change for a company. Um, it really is one of those major milestones in their their growth and their evolution. And you talked about the fact that you know you come on board and and perhaps they trust that that you'll be there that that you value that impact side of things so that in the tough times if they're still you know maintaining that impact philosophy and and those values that you'll stick with them how can you help to maintain that when suddenly their share register has boomed and that not all of those people jumping on um really appreciate that impact side of things
1: there i think it's fair to say that blackrock scale does matter and and furthermore, I say that the the fact of some other investors of scale coming into this is useful and, and will be important. So whatever the size of my fund and the funds that we have doing impact may be, when I'm having a meeting with management, they're thinking about all of my colleagues whom in some sense I may be representing and with whom I speak. And so I've never had meetings with management where they said, you're just Eric's impact fund. We're not going to spend time with you. I think they might, if it was, if, if I were standalone boutique, I mean, I think that's an unfortunate reality, but the fact that BlackRock is speaking that language of impact and sustainability, I think is something that catches management's attention. I'd also say to you, we're not doing something confrontational. You know, if we were, a sustainable investor trying to get a steel plant or an oil and gas company to be more sustainable, then there could readily be elements of of conflict rather than collaboration. But if I'm if I'm meeting with a company that's doing renewables or companies that's doing uh, mass <laughs> mass market education in the developing world, we're we're on the same side, and we all recognize it. So uh, here's an example. We have an investment in a microfinance company of some size in Indonesia, and they had to make a choice in this year of COVID to cut their dividend so that they could uh, offer some forbearance for their borrowers. It's good that they have an investor like BlackRock who says, that's a responsible thing. What you're gonna do is you're going to keep your your clientele loyal to you into the future, we endorse that, but they might have worried about whether uh, the cut in dividend was acceptable to to shareholders. I think it's important that there are shareholders of size speaking to different kinds of long-term objectives than those who are short-term owners.
0: And then this concept of, of engagement is often used in the world of ESG as being a, a tool, a lever, to influence public markets. And, and that, that's kind of, we can get rid of all the terminology, but in the end, that's what this whole process is about, right, how do we influence big public companies to focus on stakeholders rather than just shareholders? We bring impact in, and obviously in the private markets, there's an element of a smaller share group of shareholders. You might have a seat on the board, you're probably in there all day every day you're talking about the mission it's very clear big private markets you've talked about engagement but i think that that's an interesting difference there where often the sustainable investors are you know it may be confrontational but at the impact level you've already broken down your investable universe that you've kind of put people it's sort of the 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 top right they're already deep green perhaps and now i'm not sure exactly who's in in that 800 or what those um Cutoffs are. I mean, maybe you could talk just briefly about how you do, you know, make your exclusions and and who fits into your universe, but then also what does engagement look like? What are these meetings like? And I mean, I think I read a number that there was about 800 companies perhaps in your universe. I mean, that's a lot, right? And how do you maintain that connection, engagement, and and that they're they're still on board with their values?
1: That's a compound question. Let's see. Let me start with the selection (laughs) process. So we're selecting for our universe not for our portfolios when we in in that first stage we're qualifying them for investment as impact and what that consists of is first of all alignment thematically so investment in access to education, access to health uh, renewables, digitalization and efficiency in the economy a set of themes well defined and that brings you to, more than 800 company, but then what we're looking at is two criteria that come from impact investing in the private markets, materiality and additionality, not the additionality of us as an investor, which as you were alluded to is, is important for us and for private markets impact investing, but additionality of the company. So what does materiality mean? It means that at least half of what they do is impact. And in fact, when you look and do an audit of our of our uh, strategies, you know. Something around 93% impact because you know if you're if you're running a renewables farm you're probably not doing coal on the side or if you're doing mass education you're probably not doing elite education that leads to inequality right so so most of them are pretty pure plays 50% is enough of a threshold that you end up with a universe of almost all pure plays in impact the second thing is additionality it's a really interesting and probably underappreciated concept for the company itself. It answers the question of were it not for this company, would this problem be being solved? And so for our companies, it's through either their technology or their new business model or the fact that they're serving a population that hasn't been solved before that they are additional. If they didn't exist, the problem wouldn't be getting solved. And so that's a really high bar, you can think about, I mean, I've seen in in other strategies, companies that you can say, are they meeting the SDG of no hunger? You know, for us, those are the companies that are developing new proteins or ending the, the scourge of, of food deserts in urban areas, or somehow lowering the cost of, of food production. For uh some strategies i've seen that it could be i won't name them but you know your big incumbent cookies and crackers manufacturer sure it's aligned with that theme and sure their cookies feed people but there's no uh theory of change in that it's just the old incumbent doing what it's done since forever and so i think by the time you take a strict line on additionality of the company then you end up with a a universe, where no matter who looks at whatever company in the universe, you can say pretty readily, oh, I see, that's a company that's solving a great problem. So that speaks to the uh, universe development. Our team doesn't know all the management or the companies in detail of those 800 companies. What we do is we manage strategies that are in the neighborhood, 40, 50 companies. And we have a few different flavors of those. and. We know those companies well, and then some orbit around those of companies we're considering around that. And those are the companies that we are engaged with more deeply over a long period of time. And when you think about turnover that's only every five years, it's those companies we want to concentrate on, and those companies we want to work on making better, which also means even if they're only 800 in that universe, there's tons of room for other strategies to come in. I'd like to see more of them. I'd like to see six big shareholders in the room for these companies helping to make them better and also on the ESG issue. That's another point that relates to what you said. Just because I'm educating poor kid doesn't mean I have dealt with all of my ESG issues, right? I may have a governance structure that is as problematic as any other company. And so, we, we also have to do ESG engagement to make sure that things line up that, that the how of what they the, the how of their business is also as good as the what of their business so we have to engage in both senses of ESG and impact
0: and so if you do identify a company that that's product is additional you know they're offering something new and, and new and innovative to the world how do you guys measure impact and while that that's a big amorphous term you know I'd love to think through, you know, would you release an impact report, for instance, for your portfolio and say, if you invest in this portfolio, if you put X dollars in, you know, have some sort of quantitative measure of, of what that impact is, you know, have you, are you able to categorize it? Uh, how are you guys working through that?
1: Our starting point is there are standards for measurement and management of impact that are established that are in pretty wide use, you know, the impact management project, the operating principles, the GINs Iris Plus taxonomy. There's a set of things that are good enough that no one should be inventing from scratch. Sort of damages credibility to have a jumble of different standards and measurement approaches. And I think that's been a problem. And I think that also has lent itself to kind of impact washing if you judge yourself by your own self-created <laughs> standards and so we want to be sure that we're using best practice globally accepted principles and that's 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 the starting point point. and as far as then ultimately what what measurement or what reporting you can do on that you know the, the iris taxonomy is helpful for our companies it covers about 70 percent of our companies you know, if you have a company, we have a company that does mass notification of crises. There's a flood or whatever. Now they do COVID notification. I'm afraid ir- iris taxonomy does not cover that particular area. So some things you have to do independently, but wherever we can do the standards, that's what we use. And therefore, in that sense, our fund and our, our holdings can be compared against anyone else, and there's nothing more important than being able to measure it to, you know, to rise the challenge of, is this really impact? And if a company falls short of the KPI, the key performance indicator that you're tracking, what do you do? What conversation do you have with the company to understand why that happened and whether it's gonna happen in the future, whether there's uh mission drift, drift, whatever. So that's, that's I think, I and mean, that's just telling you about this, the principles of what we do, and then it gets down to a lot of specifics with, with each company.
0: And you've given us some examples in the, already today, which is great. Do you have any other case studies, companies that you'd like to talk about that have a good story of how you feel that your investment has, has helped them grow and, and helped them produce something really important to, to solve one of these big, wicked problems?
1: If we go back to Paul Breast's issue of, of the money, even if even if I say it's not all about the money. Um, I will tell you there is a uh, a company that's not yet profitable that we invest in that does genomic sequencing for women's health, and you know it's important if you're going to be running raising money readily, to, uh, you know, in in a particular cadence that you manage that, and and they're managing that for the first time. You know, the, the team is great, but this is their baby, and and it's a younger company, so. When they got too close to their um, their their the brick wall that they might have hit if they you know with their cash burn the stock price fell and the market wasn't loving them and we sat down with them and we said because we'd known them for a couple of years and we said look you did make a mistake you should have kept that window longer you know that that space longer before you would need to raise money and get in there earlier and. Also, we talked about what vehicles you can use to raise money that might be most productive. So we had a whole set of, of these discussions with them, and I think they were readily on board. I know they're readily on board because in the ensuing two years, every time they have needed money, they've done it in the cadence we discussed and with the instruments we discussed. And we also said, and furthermore, right now when you're in trouble and your stock prices have, we're stepping in, we'll 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 support you with the secondary issuance and get you out of this. now. It's not self-serving. I mean, here a few years later, the stock is up 10 times because it was a great company, but the market was not believing in it. But we were there with them, and we've been there with them at other times. So in just a pure financial way, you know, we're, we were concerned that they wouldn't be around. We talk about it as to, to survive another day to deliver their impact. And they have expanded from their women's health issues to now doing broader cancer. Uh, sequencing. And it's it's just a great story on on every dimension. I can go on with other examples if you like.
0: No, no, that's a great one. Can you give us the name of that company? Uh, we don't usually talk about the names of the companies. That's why I'm
1: describing them regularly. So, <laughs> So I'm going to defer okay. on that.
0: <laughs> I'm keen to talk more about this data point issue. I think that public equity markets you know, are often challenged. I mean, they have to release so much data already, but but impact data is not yet as uniform as we would hope. Um, As you mentioned, you know, there are frameworks that can be used and and there's an increasing, you know, universality to that, which is really great, keeping everybody using the same system so there is comparability. But if we look at, I don't know, ESG data providers, sort of they're very different from one to the other. But if we looked at those same companies doing credit rating, they're almost identical. Um, so I think that causes a difficulty. And then to me, there's another layer, which is looking at something like a sustainability report, which talks about impact, but it's often it's very narrative driven and, and it comes from the company. So it's difficult to sort of verify. It's not really audited. Uh, do you have any solutions for having some really precise you know, measurement factors um, we talked before we started recording about sir ronnie cohen's discussion his impact weighted accounts you know that's trying to take that very audited and, and accountable uh, data point um how are you guys managing that side of things
1: i'm glad you mentioned the uh, impact weighted accounts we're actually working with ronnie and george seraphim trying to help them we're, we're kind of guinea pigs with our universe of company to help them in moving beyond the carbon issue, and they've got that down very well, um, and some of the other E, S, and G issues. To looking at what the companies produce and judging what the what the net impact there is. The standards haven't really gotten there, and George's effort is a a heroic attempt to 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 move, and they've, they've gotten quite quite far, but there's still a good deal more that has to happen. But of course, you have to start there, and I, I will point out that even though the ESG data providers are in the systems of, of every fund manager. We can all pretty well acknowledge that while well, they differ between them and across all of them, the results are, are fair to weak. What they do for us, though, is when I look at at what the reports tell me, they tell me some of the good questions that I need to ask. Some of them aren't. Are, are just off point or wrong or outdated, but sometimes they give me information that is is very useful. Um, Most times there's some uh, nugget or two in the report that's something I really think needs to be addressed. And so similarly to the credit rating analogy that you mentioned, everybody has different interpretations and everybody has different different, uh, uh, areas of focus. And so that's true with ESG data vendors. What I don't like too much is just reliance on the score because it's still still weak, but I think the reports are a rich vein of possible questions to address. When I think about engagement, what I always think about is what's the outcome of engagement? I think the old fashioned engagement where I have the set of issues, whether it's the credit credit rating report, credit reports issues or ESG issues, and I have them under my arm and I go to the company, I meet with management, I ask a few questions and then I file my report, that just doesn't fly anymore. I think that it should all be outcome oriented. What resulted from it? Did I reduce my holding? Did I decide that I'm going to double down on engagement and come back to them until I'm I'm uh, satisfied with what they're doing in this area? or in the worst case, do I have to exit because I find it unacceptable, just as if I found financials that were uh, wrong, obscure, uh, uncomfortable, I would also exit. That's the extreme outcome. And I think there's every kind of outcome between that and just being satisfied enough that you did your homework and filing your report. So we're getting there. That's the reality. And the reality is on carbon avoidance, we've got a lot of agreement. People understand how that works, and everybody uh, can agree, plus or minus, that this company avoided this amount of carbon. But when it comes to everything else about saving lives or educating people or creating more efficiency in a way that's other than than carbon related, then it's more ambiguous and it's it's going to be a process over the next 10 plus years to get to Good, agreed upon, shared data.
0: Yeah, look, that's really great. Uh, I just want to say thank you for all of all of the the elements you've sort of talked about so far. And I, and I have this question that's been in the back of my mind, and it probably captures most of what we've talked about already today. But I wonder if you've got just a you know a short summation of it. And that's this question of if you had an investment manager who had an ESG fund, if they wanted to drive that towards being an impact fund. What would be the the key challenge? What would be the biggest hurdle you think that they'd have to cross?
1: Um, We actually have this as a live issue because as BlackRock has moved to all investing being sustainable investing, that becomes, uh, I don't know if you all know the term table stakes, that becomes what everybody does is ESG investing. So there are investors who say, "I, I want to do more than that. I want to do different from that and are thinking about how can I shift my A successful strategy that is now ESG integrated to also incorporate impact. It's not for everybody, not for every strategy. There have to be some strategies investing in steel and aluminum because our economies depend on it. But if an investor wants to shift, what it means, the easy part is it means adjusting your universe because there are things you can't invest in. And that's true for anybody. If I'm a small cap manager, I don't go looking at large cap and think oh shoot i wish i could invest in those companies and so i think the hard thing is uh to think about owning the responsibility for that universe recognizing that you have to set a standard that's a high standard for everything that you could invest in and what the discussion i have with with the analysts in my team is often look we're all smart if you wanted to come up with a justification for that chocolate company to be solving the world's great problems you probably could do it you know we can all uh you know use some tortuous justification i mean i've seen that for social media connecting the world in a beautiful way sure you can make a plausible argument but really what we want to be sure is that Any reasonable person looks at this and can ask the question, is it solving a great world problem? And if companies in your universe, or most people don't show the universe, but show the the portfolio, there are companies in your portfolio that are not credible, it's really damaging to your reputation, to the reputation of impact investing generally. I'll tell you, I've seen semiconductor companies in impact portfolios. I think they're in there because people want... Kind of high, higher octane or more more cyclical companies, not because anyone thinks that the company that makes yeah, it's it's a company that makes um, semiconductors could be for renewables, could be for for what for education, I don't know, but it's a lot of it is TVs and phones, and some of it is defense and everything else. I don't really see. I, I think the damage there is great i don't think it meets either materiality or additionality in the way that we think about it but i think what's then hard for the transition is for an investment manager to realize that he or she has to be on that has to has to own that reputational risk and be like a hawk about
0: it yeah no look that's really great and i think that brings me on to this next step i mean you talked about BlackRock's evolution to embedding sustainability in all of its investing. And we've, we've surprisingly made it all this way, and we haven't yet talked about Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. He put a flag in the sand with his annual letters starting, I think it was 2018. You know, his rhetoric has grown increasingly indignant about the importance of action on climate change and that companies need to be driven by a purpose greater than profits. And so I just wonder... You know, BlackRock, the the biggest asset manager in the world, right? It stretches well beyond the impact funds we've been talking about today, but it got there by scale. Can you also be responsible stewards of these assets at such huge scale? You know, they they sort of seem to be polar opposites in terms of one is high touch and one is the lowest touch possible. How can you make, make that balance? So
1: I wouldn't say that our index or ETF investing is low touch. It is lower touch than active investing, but the engagement that goes on, on there is is very active and very important. And so, there's no sense in which BlackRock is moving toward investing being impact. But what BlackRock is ensuring is that in these in these uh, big funds that. Own steel and and own oil and gas that the managers or our central uh, stewardship group is engaging with them and is becoming more transparent about that engagement. So in the in the past we've taken a view that it's important for us to be able to speak confidentially with management, have that engagement about what we'd like to see changed, where they can know that it's not going to be public. I think. Part of the evolution has been to recognize that you can't just say, trust me. And so we become much more transparent about that dialogue, about where we're pushing to make sure things progress as they need to. That's a difference, that's, a, that's an evolution. And, and everything about sustainable investing and impact investing is about evolution. So what, what BlackRock did five years ago or even two years ago, is not what it's doing now or what it will be doing in the future. But we're moving fast in that evolution to be sure that what we do is is more and more in line with, with what progressives would like to see. Now, two things I'll say is, if you're providing indices to everybody, you can't force anyone to be invest in the sustainable index. But suppose you do what we're doing now, which is to say... You can have this index that has something objectionable in it or you can have this other index that has all the same characteristics because we have great technology to be able to have it have essentially no tracking error versus the other index. And we've also committed to making it exactly the same price even though it costs BlackRock a bit more to create that index or even though our index providers might charge us more, but we're gonna we're gonna provide it at the same cost. So if you think about it, think about you're, you're, you're in your kitchen and you have a recycle bin and you have a trash bin and you're gonna throw out a can that can be recycled. If everything's the same, why are you gonna put it in the trash bin? You're gonna just toss it in the recycling bin. We're trying to make it easy like that so that everybody can make that choice. And it's an equivalent choice. And I think by doing that, I mean, it already, is moving so much of our assets into the more even in the index and even the in ETF area. So much of our growth has moved to the sustainable space in a way that I think in the future you'll see all of the growth going that way and the other will will dwindle to some extent.
0: And I think I think that transparency piece is really important that you know BlackRock is just so big, we can't see everything. But, you know, the few data points that we do get to see are, are on the one hand, Larry Fink's letters, which are really great insight, and there's lots of uh, discussion around that. But then we see these other inputs of of voting on on shareholder resolutions and the fact that, you know, BlackRock has voted against some that are focused on TCFD disclosures and and moves to take climate action. Could that be solved with, with more disclosure telling us more about how those decisions are made? Or is it simply comes back to this resource issue when you guys are so big, you know, thousands of companies, but yet your your sort of engagement stewardship team just, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to have that influence across so many different companies. How are you guys finding that balance?
1: It's a good question because, for one thing, that group that does our um, engagements is growing like crazy. So we recognize that we need to have more resources in our stewardship group, and it is undoubtedly the biggest stewardship group in any fund manager in the world. And we're also building more capabilities so that if I'm an analyst in that group and I'm covering whatever industries, now I'll be covering fewer so I can know them better and I can know the issues and I can follow them for more years and raising the skill level of that group so that it's equivalent to, to other analysts in other groups, right? I mean, it's important. It's as important to have a great... Uh, stewardship analyst as it is to have a great stock analyst. And so I think that's an argument for, it. the problem is that it is an argument for scale. I mean, it means that, that BlackRock has an advantage in being able to do more with more companies. But I think it's also, as you suggested, a matter of transparency. What is that dialogue that goes on that takes place before the vote, right? I mean, in some sense, we've taken a position that I very much agree with, that if we get to a point where we're voting against a board member or whatever, and we do, that should tell you that our dialogue failed. I mean, hopefully we have this dialogue that takes you to a point where, you know, there's something wrong with this director choice or whatever the the issue may be. And we've had conversations with them and we've expressed our Our view that this this is not acceptable. And we came to a conclusion. If you see us voting against, it's a failure. So we want to share what the dialogue was before that. And we're sharing that more and more. Maybe it's done in a multi-company way by talking about, but with a with a letter where everyone can see where we stand on board diversity, whatever it may be. But it may be also about the issues that we find acceptable in an individual company and more and more of that is being made available to the public. And I think with uh, new leadership in our stewardship group, there's a an elevated uh, commitment to being sure that people know about the process as well as that one visible thing of how, how we vote.
0: Mm. All right. Look, thanks for that. It's you know, such a big organization and, and I think people are really eager to understand more about how how it all works in there and and it sounds like there is lots of progress but of course people are always demanding more and so so yeah thank you for giving us some insights there now what i am keen to do is shift gears a little bit um and and that's look at your sort of career progression um and and how you came to find yourself where you are you know there was a move from from wellington where, where you ran the hartford global impact fund you know that was I'm not really sure of the size, sort of more of a boutique offering, didn't come close to the scale of BlackRock. How was that transition? And, you know, you'd been there, I believe from what I read, it was sort of, you know, 20 years or more. You know, you would have built your own strategies and really your own processes and philosophy. When you moved across, did that did that have to shift to match the scale or, or how was the transition?
1: So we weren't necessarily looking to move, but we'd started thinking about it and and most of the team came to BlackRock. The thing to realize is that this idea of sustainability being central makes a huge difference for for the team. We were not well resourced, but it's also the, the promise from Larry Fink and from others in management at BlackRock was that with us moving to sustainability being the standard of our investing impact investing is the flagship of that if if we are going to hold ourselves out as sustainable investors we have to be able to offer a highly credible impact offering and furthermore so my role is to manage that but also to encourage other investors at blackrock to develop new strategies so we have things going on in every asset class and every geography. There's so many people who are excited to develop new new strategies. And before, the way I think about it is we were a nice to have. And so, yes, they would trot us out to say, yeah, we have this impact investing strategy, but at BlackRock, we're a must-have. We're we're central to this move to sustainability. And they're is a lot of attention and activity going on toward, it's not exactly replicating because every strategy is gonna be different, but finding the investment teams that want to do this kind of thing and supporting them in doing that. So we're we're helping them to know what the precepts of impact investing are and what they, they will have to do. I mean, it's really exciting to see how much action is moving in that direction. And whatever BlackRock's able to come up with, it still won't be enough. You know, we need lots more of this. Um, But they recognize, as I was saying before, that, uh, I mean, the the new investors who are doing this recognize that they're going to be held to a high standard. We have rules for identifying what qualifies as an impact fund and that they're going to be challenged by asset owners about what they're calling impact. Is it really impact? And I think it's it's made suspect by how some asset managers have presented things that don't really look like. When you look under the hood, either their holdings or uh, probably also their process doesn't seem like the standard we should expect of something called impact investing. So anyway, moving over has been a phenomenal thing. We've been really well supported and we've been given an opportunity to make impact. When I thought about moving to BlackRock, it was it was really, I mean, we're starting over. We, we actually managed a billion dollars and we we're starting at zero. But the idea wasn't that. The idea was, if you're going to have an impact in the world and, and facilitate others, moving tens and maybe hundreds of billions of dollars into impact strategies that are oriented to these global solutions, where else would you want to do it? This is the place. And so the team has not looked back and been super excited for the short period we've been here, just a little bit more than a year.
0: And now winding back even earlier, you were an economist at the World Bank. Now, this was in the early 90s. Was that your first job out of university? No.
1: First job out of university was a diplomat. I took the Foreign Service exam in the US and was accepted and went to be a diplomat in Rwanda. And... I already had the development bug i mean my undergraduate degree was was in development economics but that's where it really grew and i i knew i had to go do development and back then if you wanted to do something to make the world a better place the choices were uh pretty clear i mean you could go do philanthropic or ngo work you could do that in support of your country's aid mission you could go to a multinational like the world bank which I had sort of scoped out as my dream job. And so that's why I went and got my PhD and I got accepted. And that was the paradigm from that period. So I actually got into finance 20 some years ago, taking a leave of absence. I I, I worked on the Mexico financial crisis and found that super interesting and was in Mexico City in the financial markets and thought, I, I wanna go take my sabbatical now and do that. And I, I got the leave of absence and I went for several years. And then I ended up staying, but I always wanted to get back to something that spoke to my heart as well as the uh, the intellectual part of doing finance. And when impact investing came about, you know, a decade plus ago, I started thinking this is this is phenomenal. This is for me, but it doesn't exist in public markets investing, which is what I did. And so I thought about join a social enterprise I thought about impact investing in the private markets and I talked to friends and and people I met about that and then I realized I know how to do something where it doesn't exist and so we went about building this strategy from scratch and uh it turns out it's it's a it's a wonderful exciting and powerful thing and and it turns out it's also really hard to do it right
0: I share some similarities there in having a background in economics and pushing towards international relations and, and, then, and then similarly seeing impact investing as a, as a really powerful way to bring these sort of two skill sets together. But then you sort of skipped over something there. It was a PhD in economics at Harvard, and, and that was at a time that was pre this creation of the concept of impact investing. Of course, not the, I guess not the concept, but the terminology. So, when you were were studying economics at Harvard, uh, did you sort of already have an interest in this alternative view of markets? Uh, I mean, it could have been the opposite; you could have been an advocate for, for the Chicago School. But I just wonder what was your worldview at that stage.
1: So, I, I studied areas that were around development economics. And it was clear where I was going. I mean, the, the like I said, the, the World Bank was was the dream job, and. Uh, economics was the vehicle to be of use in that. And I, I actually thought that I would be at the World Bank for the next you know, 30, 40 years with these exciting sabbaticals doing different interesting things. And then it just turned out that the first sabbatical I took extended without end. And it was fascinating, but it left me still looking at job listings for economics jobs that were in development. Nothing was quite right for that. And and so I just kept learning and growing in the job that I had, but thinking about how would I put these two pieces together? And, you know, for me, honestly, impact investing is a gift to myself. I mean, it's a wonderful thing for rejuvenating me uh, professionally because it does bring together both those dreams of the great challenge and fascination of finance with doing good in an economic sense. And it does aggravate me that there's a lot of impact washing and there are things that are not done as well as they should be, but it just means that for the team, we redouble our efforts to be as true to this as possible. And it's gratifying at the same time that they all the the entities that do uh that are focused on doing impact investing the right way are doing case studies on our team and its product and process because we are trying to to do it better than it's been in fact we recently were contacted by the ifc who developed the operating principles for impact investing and they said can we talk to you about this because we developed the principles around impact investing in private markets but we know what you're doing in public markets. Could we have a meeting with you to understand that better so that we can work on continuing to adapt our principles to public investing and impact investment too. It feels like we're doing something right. And at the same time, it feels like you have to just keep getting better and better because the the, the standards are moving up, which is great.
0: I really, really appreciate all of the insights you've offer, offered us today. I think it's a rare, opportunity to dig into sort of the cutting edge of impact investing in public equities and it's something that I have talked about probably it's probably one of the key issues that I've sort of tried to get people to discuss on this podcast so thank you I think I think we've all learned a lot and we can see that this space really is evolving it's great to see. Now, before I let you go, one last thing is to ask for a book recommendation. I'd love to get a feel for, you know, is there anything that, that helped you with your career early on, or maybe just something that's uh, on the side table amid COVID? I
1: bet you heard the same thing when you interviewed Ronnie Cohen, but I think his book is what people should be reading right now to understand impact investing and how important it can be and how it can move from being uh a niche thing in private in private markets to being the main course to being something that is central to everything we do when we talk about about investing it's called impact it's straightforward i think that that's the hottest thing out there for understanding everything we're
0: talking about here and and what about on your downtime do you do you read fiction do you watch netflix any podcasts do you like
1: what i really love to do these days is to cycle out to the ocean the Pacific that is not so far from where I am here in San Francisco and cycle along the side of the beach and see the horizon and feel the sense of the hugeness of the world at a time when we're sheltering in place and can't go out to do anything and can't travel and can't eat out and our worlds are small. So I think that's what I would say is these days that makes my world big and rich simple, but, but, uh, that's what I find that is appealing. And yes, I watch too much Netflix.
0: Oh, great. Now look, I, I think that it's been a tough year and COVID has been tough on so many people, but, uh, you know, one of the few winners is, is cycling and that people have re re engaged with cycling because it, it keeps you out of the subway and keeps you off buses and, you know, you get fit, no emissions to me. It's a win-win I love cycling and, and hopefully our, our, our cities will adapt to, to allow more of it. So look. Appreciate all of that. I'm going to let you go now and, and I hope people can dig deeper and, and, and I'm sure there'll be a continuing evolution of what BlackRock is doing in this space. So we'll stay tuned. Thanks very much for your interest, Jack.